Let's close our eyes in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness uh, over and over again in, time, in our times of weakness, in our times of doubt. You show yourself to be a faithful and abiding God, one who does not leave us, one who does not abandon us, uh, even when we have no energy, even when we are drained. And Father, I just ask that you uh, anoint this time that we have together so that we can put our focus solely on you and on the cross of your son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're continuing our series on the book of Acts, which will take us all the way through to the, the end of November. And we're in this series to look at the question, what is the church? Why is it that we gather? What is the, the church of Jesus Christ exist for? And the book of Acts really details the first 30 years of the early Christian church from the ascension of Christ and Pentecost where the Spirit comes down all the way to when the Apostle Paul is sent to prison in Rome where he's given a chance to preach the gospel in the capital of the Roman Empire. So from Jerusalem to Rome, that's basically the trajectory of Acts that we're going to be following through until the end of November. And in the course of looking at the activities of the church at the conversions and healings and the sermons and the way the church took care of the poor and planted new Jesus communities all across the world, we will more and more begin to see an answer. This is what the church is. And so that's why I'm so excited about this series. So far in the story, Jesus has ascended up to heaven and he's told his followers to wait for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes down upon the community of believers, about 120 people at this point. Peter preaches the first sermon. 3,000 people are baptized and saved. They become Christians. So it grows exponentially after the Holy Spirit comes. Last week we read Acts chapter 3. Peter and John heal a man who was lame from birth, right? A beggar who was outside the temple gates. And the people are amazed. So they, so they come and gather around Peter and John and this lame man trying to figure out what's going on. And Peter and John preach to them that the power to do this does not come from themselves, but from the new king of the universe. It's a testimony that there is... Uh, uh, that God has placed a king over all of creation, and that's Jesus Christ, from the line of David, uh, the prophet promised by Moses, that he was crucified, he lives again, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so that's where we are as we start Acts chapter 4, Peter and John preaching to the crowd. So just as a preview, in today's passage, if you uh, open up your Bibles to Acts 4, you'll see that Often there are three different headings, three basic parts to the way the chapter is divided. The first part is when Peter and John are arrested by the council of priests, the Sanhedrin. Uh, the second part is when they are released by the Sanhedrin and they gather with the other disciples to pray to God. And the third part talks about how the church in Jerusalem continues to grow and be united. So we can summarize today's message in three parts. First part is the name we proclaim. Second part is the shaken worldview. And the third part is the grace we share. So we're going to start with the first part, the name we proclaim. And we're going to start by reading verses 1 to 22 of Acts 4. And then we're going to pause there and talk a little bit. So starting from verse 1, Acts chapter 4, verse 1. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came to them much annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming that in Jesus there is the resurrection of the dead. So they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and they numbered about 5,000. The next day their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. When they had made the prisoners stand in their midst, they inquired, by what name or by what power did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, 
rulers of the people and elders, if we are questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who is sick and are asked how this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were amazed and recognized them as companions of Jesus. When they saw the man who had been cured standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So they ordered them to leave the council while they discussed the matter with one another. They said, what will we do with them? For it is obvious to all who live in Jerusalem that a notable sign has been done through them. We cannot deny it. But to keep it from spreading further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them again, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all of them praised God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing had been performed was more than 40 years old. Okay, let's stop there for now. Uh, notice what's going on here. First of all, after healing the lame man, Peter and John are preaching the resurrection of the dead to the people in the temple. So what is that? What is the resurrection from the dead? Well, within Judaism, there was kind of a split in belief. Uh, there, was, there was a belief among some people, among a group of people, based off the prophecies of Isaiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel, that at the end of time, at the very end of time, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the creator God, would judge the world and that the righteous would rise to eternal life, and the wicked would be destroyed. And in the course of that resurrection, all of creation would be perfected and renewed, and death would die. That was kind of the belief. So you can see how this has a lot of continuity with a lot of Christian beliefs. God created a good world. He created humankind to bear his divine image, right, with an instruction to rule the world, to steward the world, and bring it into fuller expressions of order and delight. But humankind, through sin, enslaved its own nature and cursed creation to the powers of corruption and death. That's the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 through 3, right? And there were some Jews who believed that at the end of time, God would bring a final judgment, and there would be a resurrection of the dead where the world would be perfect. And those who had lived lives of righteousness, those who had kept the law, would be raised to eternal life, and heaven and earth would be united. But those who were wicked would not be able to enter into that new heaven and earth life. But just like our own society is divided today in terms of politics, right? Back then, they divided themselves in terms of religious belief. Those religion and politics were very tied together. I mean, that's still true today. Uh, and our own society is divided between Democrats and Republicans, right? Democrats, tip, and they both disagree on a lot of things. But when you drill down to it, a lot of the differences in their beliefs come down to size of government. Democrats typically want government to be more involved. Republicans uh, typically want government to step back, right? That's fair. Uh, well, back then, the Jews in Jesus's day and following Jesus's day, it's called the second temple period. You'll hear that a lot. The Jews in the second temple period were divided into the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Do you guys remember reading about that in the Gospels, the Pharisees and the Sadducees? 
And, the, and they were not friends. They were united against Jesus, but they were not friends. The main thing dividing the Pharisees and the Sadducees was belief in the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead, and so that's why they were so concerned with righteousness. They were so concerned about setting themselves apart from sinful people. They believed that if you could live pure lives without any sin by following all the moral rules and all the ceremonial rules, all the rituals, you could earn a righteous status and rise from the dead at the end of days and enter into God's new creation. And often this has like demographic issues. They were often... Country people, rural people, they had a very strict understanding of the law. The Sadducees, the other party, didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. They were more influenced by Greek thought. Uh, They believed that when you died, all graves went to Sheol. Sometimes they called it Hades in the Greek, uh, the grave. The Sadducees were more elite. They were more learned. They were more educated. uh, And they were basically in charge of the Jerusalem temple. And they made a lot of alliances with the Roman Empire. Basically, you let us rule the religious sphere, we will give you the political and military sphere. So they had sort of an alliance to rule Judea with the Romans. The Pharisees and the the Sadducees hated each other. A lot of it had to do with the fact that the Sadducees were cooperating with the Romans. The Pharisees wanted to overthrow the Romans. Okay, But they were united in wanting to crucify Jesus. They, both sides saw Jesus as a threat to their systems of power. The Pharisees wanted to overthrow the Romans, but they wanted to create a new kingdom like David, right, conquering the world. And they saw Jesus saying that he's from the line of David, but he's preaching something totally different to what they believed the new kingdom would be like. The Sadducees didn't even want that new kingdom. They were comfortable in their alliance with the Romans. Both sides saw Jesus as a threat. And so because he was preaching the kingdom of God, they ended up, what, crucifying him. We all know that. And we see that they are uniting again against the early church. When they see Peter and John, they're like, oh, these are those guys who are following Jesus. We killed them and they didn't go away. In Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, we read that the priests, the Sadducees, and the temple guard arrest Peter and John because they are preaching that in Jesus there is resurrection from the dead. So this is Jerusalem, this is temple, this is the temple party. They're the people who are cool with the Romans. They're against this belief that there is resurrection in the dead. Peter and John are saying there is a resurrection, but that it began in the middle of time, not at the end of time. And it began with one perfect Jew the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and that his resurrection is available to all of us, even sinners, through the Holy Spirit. And that the fact that they were able to heal the lame man is proof that the Spirit of Jesus is with the church. And now 5,000 more people have come into Christianity as a result. So Peter and John are arrested, and the Sanhedrin gathers together to try them, just like they did with Jesus. And if you look at the names, you'll see familiar names, Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests who killed Jesus, they're here, present, to try Peter and John. And so they bring Peter and John before them, and they ask this question, in whose name, by what power, by what authority did you heal this man? That's what they're concerned with. And this is what Peter tells them in verse 8. He says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are questioned today because of a good deed done, if we're being questioned because we did something good in healing this man, then know this, this man who is standing before you in good health has been healed by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. 
And just like with Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, the priests are too afraid at this point to punish them because the people are with the church. If you remember the gospel story, they wait until the people are scandalized, so scandalized by Jesus that they can finally strike. Right now, the people are with the church, so they're afraid to strike. That's why they say in verses 21, after threatening them again, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all of them praised God for what had happened. So I, I think this first point, what I really want you to understand is that Christianity is not a private truth. It is a public truth. It is something that is a challenge to the powers that be. It is a challenge to the way that the world is arranged. The name that we proclaim is Jesus. Jesus as Lord of the world. Jesus as King of the universe. And that's an offensive claim to some people if they really understand it. But too often in our faith, I think, especially those of us who grew up in the Indian church here in America, we make this claim way too small. Unfortunately, when we think of the claim Jesus is Lord, we think of this in terms of the very... American evangelical idea, Jesus is my personal savior. Have you accepted Jesus as your personal savior? Right? Don't get me wrong. The idea that Jesus is my personal savior was trying to correct something that went wrong in the past. This idea that just because I grew up in church, just because I was baptized, I don't need to have some sort of intimate relationship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that keeps on going, that is personal. But unfortunately, I think this idea of Jesus as my personal savior has led to this distorted understanding of the gospel where the emphasis is just a personal message about where my individual destiny is going to be. Do I get to go to heaven or do I get to go to hell? If I believe in Jesus, I get to go to heaven. If I say I'm a you know, Jesus believer, whatever that means, I get to go to heaven. If I don't believe in Jesus, I get to go to hell. And I need you to hear me... In a sense, all that is true. I believe heaven and hell are real. But that's not, that's a distortion of the gospel, of what we see presented to us in scripture. The gospel is not about who gets to go to heaven when you die. That's not a threat to the Jewish rulers. That's not the reason Peter and John are arrested. The gospel is that the kingdom of God is crashing down on earth. And are you on board or are you not? The gospel is about the goal of human history, of cosmic history, in the death of Jesus, those of us who believe the gospel believe that God really did deal with the evil of the whole world. And in his resurrection, a new life is breaking into all of history. And this restored creation, we believe, will one day fill the whole earth. And all of history will culminate in the kingdom of God. And it's a beautiful picture. It's a mysterious picture. I can't tell you what exactly that will look like. But that's what we believe. We believe that the goal of universal history was met in one person who lived 2,000 years. It's a weird claim. It's a bizarre claim. Jesus Christ, a Jew who was crucified, we believe that he, he lived again. So Jesus is not just my personal savior where I put him in my little religion box and I go about my day doing everything else. He's a cosmic Lord. And if that's true, that means that all the principalities and powers and superpowers that seek to arrange the world according to what they think is right, might makes right, they have to bow down to him. So why was the early church persecuted? First by the Jewish rulers and later by the Roman rulers. Why was Peter and John harassed by the Jewish council? Why was Paul sent to prison in Rome later on? We'll read about that. The Sadducees and Pharisees hated each other, but they weren't killing each other. Why were they united in wanting to kill the Christians? 
Because the Christians claim that Jesus is Lord. And if that's true, that would mean that all of their power and their authority, their status in society would be threatened because they were not living in line with Jesus' teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll talk about that more later in the coming weeks. The Romans famously uh, allowed all kinds of religion to flourish in their empire. The Romans didn't have anything against people worshiping different gods. They were just included in their empire. And after, uh, so why, why, they even let the Jews worship the Jewish God in the temple. So why were they so offended by the Christians? Why are they trying to kill the Christians? After his death, the Romans declared that the great general Julius Caesar was a god. And so that meant that his son, his adopted son, Augustus Caesar, the first emperor of Rome, was what? The son of God, right? And because Augustus brought order to the empire when he consolidated it, consolidated it under his control, he was known with what title? He was known as the Prince of Peace. So when the Christians write in their gospel, gospel which means, by the way, good news that a king has come, when they write in their gospel that Jesus Christ is the true Son of God and that he's the true Prince of Peace, what they're saying is that Jesus Christ is the true emperor and Caesar is not. It's a political act. A lot of the drama we find in the book of Acts is from the clash between these competing claims. Because the central fact about Caesar is what? Is that he conquered his enemies by the power of the sword. And the empire he ended up creating was bloodthirsty, materialistic, selfish, and grasping. And the central fact about Jesus Christ is that he died on the cross out of love for his enemies on the cross. So if we really believe that he's Lord of the universe, and this is what he's like, and this is what he's teaching, what would the empire he create be like? It would be sacrificial, loving, forgiving, and self-emptying. And there's a clash of those worlds, and that's where a lot of the drama in Acts comes from. And we see a first hint of that clash between Peter and John and the Sanhedrin in Acts 4. The point for us here is this. We in the church today want to reduce Jesus to our personal Savior, which really just means our get-out-of-hell-free card. We want Jesus to give us just a little bit more meaning in life, a little help to get through a tough day, We say a prayer to salve our guilt or our tiredness, a little bit more energy to keep on studying. We want Jesus to help us pursue our dreams, to accomplish our goals, to take away our worries and pain. And none of those things are wrong or untrue, so please hear me. It's not wrong to go to Jesus with those things. Jesus wants us to bring even the smallest parts of ourselves to him. But let's not reduce Jesus to that smallness. Jesus is not our personal assistant. He's king. He's crucified and risen Lord of the universe. He demands our absolute loyalty, and that's scary. And if we're truly loyal to Jesus, we will be, because the thing is, if we're truly loyal to Jesus, we will be invited into battle. We will see see opposition from the powers of this world, because those powers do not want to acknowledge him. The kingdom of God is the alternative society built around Jesus, bringing forth the goal of the law and the dream of the prophets. Everything that you read in the Old Testament is pointing to him, pointing to this new humanity that Jesus is creating, where there's total love for God and neighbor. It's a community characterized by justice, mercy, and humility. And the church, by the power of the Holy Spirit, experiences the kingdom now and offers a foretaste of it, a hint of it to the world. That's what the church is, an advanced taste of the kingdom of God. So how can we get it? How can we taste that kingdom and how can we offer that taste to the rest of the world? And that brings us to the second point, the shaken worldview. So we pick up in Acts 4 verses 23 to 31. 
After they were released, after Peter and John were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they raised their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, you who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them, it is you who said by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples imagine vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers have gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in this city, in fact, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. So Peter and John are threatened by the priests not to teach or heal in the name of Jesus again, and they return to the rest of the disciples, and they all gather to pray together because probably they're a little scared. Not more than, maybe a little more than 50 days earlier, Jesus had actually been killed by this same group of people, so they're probably afraid. And while they're calling out to God, they quote Psalm 2, that's the quotation in here, which is a psalm where David foresaw that all of the people would be plotting against God's chosen one, God's Messiah, but how God would vindicate his Messiah and all peoples would acknowledge him as Lord. And as they're praying this, there's an earthquake where they are filled with the Spirit of God. Now, side note here, weren't they already filled with the Spirit of God at Pentecost? I think this is a clue for us that being with the Spirit, filled with the Spirit is not a one-time thing, but something that happens over and over again. It's a renewal over the course of a Christian life, a time when new breakthroughs and insights come often after a period of intense prayer corporate prayer, prayer in a community, seeking after God. But almost every time the Spirit of God comes down in that way in the Old Testament with power, it creates an earthquake. Because the reality of God is so present, so heavy, that it disturbs everything else when it comes down. Did you know actually the, the Hebrew word for glory, kavod, actually means weight. So when you, every, we always talk about the glory of God, what we're trying to say is the weightiness of God, the substance of God, the ultimate reality of God. And when it drops into our reality, it creates a disruption. And this is the secret of Christian life in the Spirit. We need this disruption that can only come from God. We need to ask for God to disturb us. Because we don't live in ancient Jewish times when the debates were about resurrection from the dead and whether the Pharisees or Sadducees would have power in Jerusalem. We don't live then. And we don't live in the Roman Empire when the way to belong is to acknowledge that Caesar is Lord of the world. That stuff doesn't necessarily have resonance to us. But in the modern world, we do have cultural narratives that really determine how we interpret and understand our lives. Scripts that we're given to follow just like they did. And I think for most of us here, children of immigrants from India, that script is the American dream. So you know the story. Our parents sacrificed so much for us to get us here so that we could go to nice colleges and nice grad schools to get good jobs so that we could all move higher up in life, so that we don't need to struggle, so that we will be happy. And then inevitably, inevitably, when we do struggle, because we will struggle, because struggle is constant, when we don't make the grades, when we don't marry on time, when we flunk out, when we don't follow the script, they are devastated and we are devastated because we feel we've disappointed them. We didn't follow the script. You see, there's a script 
for what a good life is, for what the purpose of life is, that maybe we don't talk about out loud or that we don't understand or, or, or see necessarily, but that we are given to follow just like the ancient Jews were and just like the ancient Romans were. And Jesus Christ comes to tear up the script. That's the truth. That's what's scary about saying Jesus is Lord. Jesus Christ says the only real reality, the realest thing there is, the heaviest weight that needs to come down and drop down in your life is me, a man dying on a cross out of love for you. A man rising from the dead after three days so you can share in my new life. A man creating a new humankind that loves God totally and loves neighbor without fear. And do we really believe that? I think a lot of times we don't. We don't have that quake in our reality that has reordered everything around Jesus. You need to have an earthquake in your life that causes you to see everything differently. Now you don't, now you don't earn money to save up for a nice house in a good neighborhood. Now you earn money to advance the kingdom of God, to spend it for others. Now you don't get a job as a doctor to make your parents proud. Now you get a job as a doctor to heal for the kingdom of God. Now you don't raise a family so that you can live your best Instagram life. You raise a family that will spread the kingdom of God. Now you don't come to church because that's what good middle-class Malayali kids who grew up in church do to make mommy and daddy happy. Now you come to church to participate in the coming kingdom of God. You long for it. There's a, there's a disturbance in your reality that has overturned everything. That's what the disciples had. They had an earthquake in their reality, which equipped them to proclaim the name of Jesus in everything they did. You arrested them, and they preached Jesus. You imprisoned them, and they prayed Jesus. You cut them, and they bleed Jesus. You kill them, and five new Jesus, Jesus lovers rise up in their place. So I, I probably know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I haven't had this earthquake. I don't even know if I want this earthquake, because it sounds scary. It sounds like I have to give up on my old life. I have to die to my old life. That's what Paul writes in all his letters. I have to give up the things in life I want. And even if I did want this earthquake, how do I get this earthquake? And there's a point to that because you can't force an earthquake to happen in yourself, right? But let me suggest this to you. When the disciples were praying, they were praying Psalm 2, and immediately that they, they were seeing that it was all about Jesus. Here is the Messiah that the people were plotting against, whom God vindicated and set as king over all. And that's what you have to do. You have to open up your imagination. This goes deeper than belief, than rational belief. This goes down to the imagination, where you see Jesus on the cross, the man dying out of love for enemies to heal the world, as at the center of everything, as at the center of your world. That's the source of the earthquake. Really imagining that and then believing that that is true. That's the foundation of your entire world. When you come to this small church where I'm singing and I'm messing up the songs or whatever, do you really see Jesus present in this small community? When we read the liturgy together, do you see Jesus coming out in those lines? When we read scripture out loud together, do you see how it's pointing forward to Jesus? As you start to do that, as we pray together, that's when the fire will come down and the earth will quake and your reality will be disturbed. And then Jesus really will be at the center and everything you do will proclaim the name that is above all names. And so what's the result of that? And that's where we come to the last point, the grace we share. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one claimed private ownership of any possessions. But everything they owned was held in common. 
With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold the field that belonged to him, then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So I think at this point, the church is somewhere around 8,000 people. And out of those 8,000 people, not one person was poor. Not one person was needy because everyone shared whatever they had with whoever was in need. They were united heart and soul, despite all their surface differences in background, in age, and gender, and wealth. When your world is disturbed by the cross of Christ, your whole understanding of what the purpose of your life is about is totally changed, and you become a person of grace. That's what I found in my life, to be honest with you guys. Like, I'm not saying I'm a perfect person or anything, but I feel like I've had my reality quaked by the cross of Christ. And it happened, uh, I, I believe that I've been a Christian ever since I was bap- baptized, but I believe that it happened really in law school when I was at the end of my rope, near the end of law school. I had a reality quake. And my, the whole, entire course of my life has changed. Why am I doing this? I'm not an ordained pastor. I'm not anything. But I'm spending myself out here trying to share the love of Christ because I feel like I've experienced a graceful love that never goes away. And it's bursting within me. And I want to share it with y'all. And I want to share it with the world. And I think that I just want you to experience that. I want you to have that reality quake. Because when you have it, you will be unshakable. There's nothing that will, that will be able to, to destroy you. Because you have a confidence in the love of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The triune God who has been uh, from eternity. Who wants to raise you into his new creation. And bring you into a life that is eternal and wonderful and beautiful. So you're no longer striving, you're no longer grasping, you're no longer imprisoned by the script that the culture gives you, that tells you, why aren't you in grad school yet? Why aren't you married yet? What will people think if you marry her, if you marry him, if you live in that house instead of this one, if you you drive that car instead of this one? Instead, you're you're a person who sees everything that you've received as a gift from God. And that the purpose for you receiving it is to share it with other people. You become a person of grace. And it's by being a person of grace that you spread the kingdom of God, that you testify to the reality of the new creation that's available in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to say that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the name we proclaim. And it's only by having a quake in our reality that we will be a church that truly proclaims the name of Christ. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, I pray for every single person here that uh, we be able to pursue you um, fully, that you, God, make yourself known to us, that you come down upon us, that you quake our reality as a community, Father, and that you make us willing to spend ourselves out for love of you and for love of our neighbor. Help us to um, see the cross, to imagine the cross, to make it central to our reality, and send down your spirit to make our dead hearts live again. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and say the Apostles' Creed together.